Welcome to Southern New Hampshire University's Social Sciences podcast, Agents of Change. Here we invite students and professionals to chat with us on topics of inclusion and diversity, student success, and their learning experiences. In this podcast, we will hear insights and personal accounts of people who have persisted against the odds and impacted positive social change. Join us as we learn how we can all be positive agents of change. Welcome to the podcast. I am your host for this episode, Dr. Hector Garcia. During this episode, we will be exploring strategies to address structural inequities and how to expand opportunities in education, community development, and transferable wealth. Let's give a warm welcome to our special guest today, Lee Tony, who is the CEO of Elevations LLC. Welcome, Lee. Hi, Hector. Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to be here. Thank you. Lee, why don't you uh, let us know a little bit about your background and uh, what qualifies you as a subject matter expert in today's topic? Sure, no problem. Well, Hector, you know, you and I uh, have a shared history in community college uh, education uh, in Miami. So certainly my work involves about 20 plus years in higher education. Uh, doing editorial work and administration of an outreach center and a predominantly working class African-American and increasingly Hispanic community in in Miami-Dade County. I also have a background in public policy at the state and uh, federal level as well. I I called the federal piece is from Washington, D.C. I worked in the mayor's office, and although D.C. is a city, certainly is a city unlike any other that has a a unique relationship with the federal government. So it's kind of everything when you work for the District of Columbia. And I've done some work uh, at the state level in Atlanta, Georgia. So I'm essentially a public policy wonk and a native Miamian. And uh, this is what informs the work of Elevations, my new social equity company uh, that focuses on our theme is advancing equity for all people, places, and spaces. So we'll t- I'm sure we'll get more into that as we talk, but uh, I'm, again, I'm just delighted to be here and delighted to have this conversation on a very important topic. Well, thank you very much, Lee. So let me frame today's conversation by talking about our theme, which is structural inequities. So that has been de- defined as systems of privilege created by institutions such as law, education, business practices, and even government regulations. These inequities can also be found in healthcare and the media and a host of other different channels. These socializing agents are powerful and they attempt to tell us what we can achieve within our society. However, we believe that just as powerful are the sustainable and impactful solutions that can be employed to reverse the malaise that structural inequities bring to our communities. And this is where Lee can provide us with her thoughts and ideas on how to move our society away from structural inequities towards an equitable and inclusive society. So with those themes in mind, Lee, tell us how you became involved in inclusion and equity issues and how they have impacted your personal mission. Sure. Hector, I'm a person of story, so I like to ground my work in stories. And this was a a story that had an evolution of, I would say, perhaps 16, 17 years. Um, As a child, 
my maternal family homestead is in a small rural area just outside Charleston, South Carolina, Hugie, South Carolina, very small town. And my family, many of us migrated, my mother's generation migrated to Miami in the 1950s. And so, as you can imagine, there's lots of travel back and forth, mainly by car. Uh, and preparing for a trip was really exciting for me as a child, because not only did you get to go somewhere with your family and all of us went together as a family, like we literally trailed each other in cars from Miami to South Carolina. And a part of that travel ritual involved preparing the most wonderful assortment of foods and drinks and snacks. And our car, we'd have coolers full of drinks and all these homemade goodies, uh, foods neatly wrapped in the smell, wafting throughout the car. I mean, as children, we were super excited. Uh, all this wonderful food and this wonderful trip that we were about to take with our family. And that's what it, how it was for years. Whenever we traveled between Miami and South Carolina, there was always a veritable picnic uh, in our cars and we'd stop and we'd share food and things like that. It was years later, Hector, that I realized that uh, more than a cultural practice for our family, it was really a practice that was an outgrowth of policies and laws, actually, that limited and prohibited African-Americans from using public accommodations as you traveled. As you'll remember, Dr. Martin Luther King's work included as a part of civil rights package was uh, new laws that granted uh, African-Americans' rights to public accommodations in travel. So, you know, restrooms, restaurants, state plazas along turnpikes, all these things before in my mom's generation, yes, you had to bring your lunch essentially because you weren't welcome. You weren't allowed to uh, go into a restaurant to get food or, you know, necessarily use the accommodations uh, at a service plaza, for instance. So what I thought as a child was just a practice that my family had for our own purposes really was born out of the fact that there were literal laws that prohibited them from accessing public accommodation. And while I wouldn't have said at that time that that was going to lead to a career in diversity, equity, and inclusion for me, it is something that is threaded throughout nearly my entire career of using the positions that I found myself in to explore, uh, to identify solutions, to educate people on this issue. Uh, and it continues to this very day. My company, Elevations, is named um, in honor of one of my heroes, Ella Baker, who was a, an important figure and underknown, underappreciated figure in the civil rights movement. So I like to explain to people, if you saw Dr. King doing something uh, or talking about a particular issue, it was Ella Baker that was setting the table for him. It was Ella Baker that was doing the training. It was Ella Baker that was designing and implementing the structure of that work. And so I honor her with that work. And I, uh, one of my favorite themes is a quote from her that says, strong people don't need strong leaders. So my life has been about helping to create strong people and strong communities. And that's what we do at Elevations. Well, that, that's awesome, uh, Lee. And those stories really are, are important for our, our readers, our, our, our listeners to understand because they probably have never heard these stories before. As the new generation is here with us, they think everything has always been as it is and that people like you and I like to talk about the past, 
so much. The good old days, and you know, they don't know what has really transpired. So I, I believe that that was a defining moment for you. And um, why, why is it so important that we recognize this history and that these issues are significant concerns, not only for those directly affected by it, but by the entire community? Well, I really think it's a, an issue for me of the economic sustainability of our country. Right now in the United States, we are um, experiencing um, activities that are threatening or that uh, certainly call into question the continued viability of our republic. And what we have seen as a country going back to the period of enslavement up to this very day, we have really repressed and oppressed a lot of talent based on a series of laws and practices, um, and most discriminatory, but and certainly limiting to the talent that is available to us as a country. And if we begin to see it that way, and particularly if young people begin to see it that way, then I think it will unlock an opportunity for them to see things differently. One of the things that I always is lurking in the back of my head is question everything. Question everything, question everybody, question authority, even your parents, right? And what we have to is create a society that is more open to questioning in a real way. And certainly we accept certain things as children because that's how we were brought up and we see our parents as credible figures. And in most instances, we believe that they are. But there should always be a time, and I, I, that's why I love the college years, of just examination and questioning and seeking deeper understanding as to why things are the way they are. Why, are we, why do we believe the things that we believe? Uh, what are those beliefs girded in? What are the foundation for those beliefs? And so I, I really encourage young people to, to really take full advantage, not just think of college as kind of a workforce development experience. If I go to college and I take this particular set of trainings and I can get this job, earn this salary, but really use it as an opportunity to also clarify, ask some questions, clarify some questions, you know, have deep and meaningful conversations with your professors, with your family, with any institution that you find yourself a part of. Take time to really understand the foundations of those institutions and your family. Your family is an institution. To understand why we believe what we believe, why we do what we do, and then to kind of draw your own conclusions. I don't think you'll necessarily end up far away from what it is you might have been trained, but you'll understand more for yourself why things are. And that opens up the door to new new learning and new understanding. Yes, totally, totally. That is that is a good thought process and examination for students to to consider the background behind their education. So as with anything in society that is not up to par, there have to be causation agents. There have to be the causes, the root causes, not the symptoms. So today, Lee, can you tell us what you believe are the most significant causation agents that have led to these structural inequities within our society? So let me do that by expanding on the definition of structural racism that you used at the opening of this conversation. Trisha Rose is a professor at Brown University and has done extensive history, uh, extensive work and research 
on the issue of structural racism. And she would, what I'd add to your very good definition is a definition that she uses. And structural racism, structural inequities exist because we have normalized, normalized and legitimized an array of historical, cultural, institutional, and interpersonal interpersonal practices and policies. And you'll hear me say that a lot. It's rooted in policies that routinely advantage whites while producing cumulative and chronic adverse outcomes for people of color. Cumulative and chronic. So let's focus on the word cumulative. The causation agents, as you describe, root are go all the way back to the institutional chattel slavery in the United States. And there have been cumulative and consecutive policies, practices, and procedures, beliefs that continue to compound or draw from that initial experience of chattel slavery that persists to this day. So while it may not have been chattel slavery was ended in the 1800s, it just also began a process of reforming into something else, something new that had essentially the same effects, right? So if it was, you know, slavery at that time, then it became Jim Crow laws, then that morphed into redlining. You know, so if you look at a chronology of federal and state and local policies, there are a lot of things that came after the enslavement period that had essentially the same effect of producing chronic adverse outcomes for people of color. And we see it across not just African-Americans, certainly primarily African-Americans in this country, but the impacts also uh, have negative impacts for Hispanics, negative impacts for women. Our country was founded uh, in a way that privileged white males. Women couldn't vote. Blacks were three-fifths of a person. So all of these parties had to advocate for full inclusion and full representation in this country. And while gains and significant gains have been achieved due through very consistent and arduous advocacy, um, women still have not achieved pay equity with men. And although African-Americans have the right to vote, it is a right and that and a privilege that has to be reauthorized every five to 10 years uh, by the federal government and still has not been reauthorized. All the provisions of the Voter Rights Act, rather, have not been uh, reauthorized to this very date. So it's one of the really important pieces of legislation that is pending before the current administration. So even that very fundamental right of being an American is still predicated and not fully um, being realized for African-Americans. Yes, we can go to vote, but we see voter suppression laws still being passed in many states in the United States to this day, uh, limitations on how one can vote, limitations on who can vote. Uh, Florida made significant advancements three years ago with the work of Desmond Mead and being able to allow ex-offenders and re-entering citizens to gain access to the ballot. Immediately that was challenged in our state legislature. Uh, so the vote is still a pretty precarious uh, right for um, African-Americans in this country. So while chattel slavery certainly ended many years ago, 
there have been many different policies and practices instituted uh, that continue to place limits. And that's what I mean about it's a threat to the economic viability of our country, because as long as we continue to oppress talent, then we limit the possibilities of this country. And as great and as exceptional as we believe ourselves to be, we could possibly, we could very likely be even greater if there were not all of these barriers in place that limit inclusion um, to the full life, liberty, and pursuit of happiness that the Constitution provides. Yes, Lee, thank you for those points. Now, looking at it just from a, an overview from where it was based, the chattel slavery to these suppressions um, to today. How do you see this progressing? Do you think we are making gains in the positive, albeit very slowly, or do you think we are at a, at a phase right now where we're kind of stagnant? What is the what is the outlook right now for this normalization and removal of these inequities? Well, I think we can look at when we talk about inequities, we look at them. Typically, there are five pillars, if you will, where we kind of examine this issue of, of inequity. We look at education. We look at housing. We look at criminal justice. We look at wealth, which is something you and I talked a little bit about before we, we talked about entrepreneurship before we came on air. We look at the, the media and we tend to look at them kind of distinctly as if each is a standalone element when in essence they are very much integrated they're like the the wheels on a one of those old-fashioned clocks and you can see the internal workings of the clock and how they all kind of work together that's essentially how it is in these areas when we think about structural racism we can't just isolate housing say we've addressed housing we now have achieved equity and not understand that it has implications for education in our very county and in a lot of counties around the country, perhaps most, education is funded by property taxes. Well, if you're in a wealthier neighborhood and the home values are higher then the property taxes that support that community and the ability of those families to provide extra incentives for their schools is always going to exist versus a, a community where the housing values are lower, household income is lower. So until we address this issue around pay equity, not just for women, but pay equity in general, then we're going to continue to see um, the inequities that exist in housing, in schools. Um, Dr. Ibrahim Ibram Kendi, who wrote the book, How to Be an Anti-Racist, uh, is also doing a lot of really important research around inequities in healthcare. And just think about what we are coming through. I'm going to be a little optimistic, what we're coming through in the pandemic. Uh, the inequities were in full display there as well in terms of access even early to the vaccines, access to a choice of vaccines, access to places where that were vaccines were available uh, and being distributed. We saw communities of color being among the last places to receive um, the vaccine in many cases. So, and in terms of outcomes, the disparate impact of deaths among communities of color further exacerbate and illustrate the issues around healthcare and inequities. And, you know, even with some of our most celebrated people in our country, uh, Serena Williams had a, a baby. Uh, did not receive the care that she would have expected to get unless she insisted upon it. Same thing happened, believe it or not. Uh, I'll use these images of this person because I know your audience will connect with it. 
immediately. Beyonce talks about the the challenges she had when she was birthing her children and how she had um, some occurrences met, did not receive the type of medical treatment, uh, pain management, or her care was not at the level that she would have expected and that we would expect even for someone of her celebrity. So it cuts across all socioeconomic status. So it doesn't matter how much money you have, where you live, um, people of color experience, have different experiences in these institutions than we find among white Americans. Yes, very, very interesting uh, examples there that I was not even aware of those inequities that were going on. So moving beyond those, the gen general issue and the causes and what some examples of that are, let's, let's focus on something now to prevent and or mitigate this in the future. So what strategies would you recommend that we adopt to address these inequities as a society? And then I'm going to ask you about some individual strategies. Well, I think the most immediate threat is what we're seeing take place right now in state houses all across the country. We unfortunately are now in a state where we are um, caring about, about our daily business. You and I are doing a podcast. Folks are going to work. Children are going to school. Uh, parents are taking care of their families while books are being banned by our state legislature. Uh, we are going about our business in our state while our laws and our rights to protests are being restricted. So I think it's important for your audience of students to understand that while they're going about their daily lives, uh, the rights and privileges that this country was built and based upon are being threatened as we speak and that it's worth paying attention. It's worth stopping to consider and to think about their role in addressing these issues. You know, a lot of times what happens in this, this sphere is the moment I hear that something either advantages or has a disadvantaging effect on a, a particular community, that ought, even if it disadvantages me in the process, um, people tend to not care, not pay attention or not advocate against it because I feel somehow privileged by my position, right? I think either my skin color or my wealth kind of inoculates me from being concerned about what's happening to those people. But I think if we're at a point in our country where we're starting to have, uh, you know, ban books, I don't know how a person, uh, a state that's banning book could be the good guys. Right. So that threatens us all. Right. So if a Fahrenheit 451, what is it called? Fahrenheit 51 is banned. That's bad for all three of us. That's bad for me. That's bad for you, Hector. That's bad for everyone. And that's essentially what's taking place in our state right now. So a lot of times and, and I would talk to students and I would be on college campus and I, I'd expect that there would be advocacy that I'd drive onto the campus and I'd see some sort of protest occurring or I'd read the student newspaper and I'd hear students um, really advocating strongly against or for whatever the issues are. And oftentimes I was, I'm going to be honest, I was disappointed. I'd come into the campus and it was like business as usual, 
you know, and it can't be business as usual because it's not business as usual. Uh, what's being taught and how it's being taught and who's teaching it is also under threat in our state and in many places in our country. So while you're going to your class, studying whatever it is you've decided to pursue, uh, the, what your professors can teach, how they can teach it is also the subject being discussed in our state legislature as we speak. And there are consequences for institutions. There are consequences for teachers. There are consequences for professors who go against these policies. Right. So it impacts history. It impacts sociology. It impacts uh, folks who are studying po political science. All these things are impacted by legislative actions that seek to curtail, limit, or eliminate certain subjects from being taught that uh, some are threatened by, some feel embarrassed by. Uh, if you are uncomfortable and you're learning about Black history, that teacher can face consequences for teaching Black history. These things are happening in our state right now, and students ought to care and be engaged and be among the most strident voices advocating against this, these types of policies. All of this falls under the umbrella of structural racism. And those things I just talked about are just in the sphere of education, but I know you can see how they impact the other areas as well. Yes, there's a definite nexus to that. Uh, in another one of our podcasts, we talked about freedom of speech and safe spaces in classrooms and how there seems to be some censorship now about what professors are talking to students about. And so that's another interesting podcast we had um, that I encourage you as well to listen to our audience. And as we focus in now a little bit on individual persons, individual students, uh, young adults, uh, even our students who are adults working with their own families. Um, there are issues that sometimes are not discussed in the classrooms um, and primarily financial issues. Um, we've always said, well, wouldn't it be great if we knew how to balance a checkbook if we knew a little bit about the stock market, how to invest our money. And it seems that in communities predominantly populated by Hispanic populations and black populations and minorities in general, that there aren't many discussions about transferable wealth and entrepreneurship. And Lee, I know you have a background in that. Can you provide our students with some insights into that? Maybe put a seed in their minds as to how they can succeed in this area of entrepreneurship and transferable wealth? Certainly, Hector. Certainly, I spent many years uh, as the um, administrator of an entrepreneurial education center at an institution of higher education. And certainly in, and in a community, uh, largely African-American, but now many years now increasingly Hispanic as well. And while African-Americans and Hispanics uh, and I'll isolate this particular piece of data because I know it to be true among African-Americans, is that while African-Americans start more businesses than just about any other population, their businesses tend to stay at the infancy stage longer than other businesses, meaning they don't scale, right? They don't become job-creating businesses in the way that 
fortunately, it's particularly here in Miami and uh, probably other uh, cities, places like New York and California, the Hispanic community has a thriving business infrastructure and have grown to create many job creating um, industries and enterprises. But among African-American businesses, while there is significant growth and significant growth also among African-American women in terms of entrepreneurship, where the challenge has been is access to capital and being able to access capital in a way that allows businesses to grow. Right. So and what we've done, I would say very well and most often is provided training and education type programs to help businesses in terms of how to manage a business effectively. What the consistent barrier has been is being able to access capital, not just from traditional banks, but also from venture capitalists. So, you know, there's been a lot of uh, startup growth and a lot of focus on, on, on startups and venture capital in the United States. And I would say in the last 20, 25 years. But even when we look at venture capital support for for businesses where the CEO is a person of color, um, the the inequity is stark in terms of the very limited percentage of African-American businesses that receive any round of funding from venture capitalists at all. So there have been some respectable efforts underway. I know most locally in our ecosystem to address that issue, but it continues to persist. Uh, Since the pandemic, uh, the city of Miami mayor opened the door to venture capitalists to come uh, who were all of a sudden I could work anywhere in the world. Let's work in Miami. Uh, And he famously tweeted, how can I help Mayor Suarez? And that kind of opened up the door to really um, accelerate the growth of tech businesses in this area. It was already started. It was already showing a good amount of traction. But certainly in the pandemic, we've seen increasing amount of growth of tech-based businesses um, emanating and relocating to our communities. The challenge becomes ensuring that this access and these new opportunities um, also are open to communities of color, to women also uh, to take advantage and grow businesses in this area. And again, back to kind of my my wheel metaphor, banking and financial institutions uh, are a part of that, right? If we can't access capital, if we can't get the kinds of loans and support that are needed to help uh, increase hiring, to, to buy equipment, to build, to have access to bigger facilities, uh, all of these things are essential. You have to be able to access loans at, at, at large number in large numbers and able to grow and scale businesses. And so we need to kind of look at, again, our financial institutions. And, and at some point, the Community Reinvestment Act was instituted that required that banks uh, be more fair, be more equitable in their lending and in their practices generally. Uh, but we still haven't seen the level of lending happen in among communities of color that allow them to have access to the funding to be able to grow and scale their businesses. So it, it remains a challenge. So what can we do as individuals? Uh, a, we can, we can pay attention. Uh, we can pay attention. It, it's, it's wonderful to be able to live in your bubble. And as long as everything is right in your world, I really don't have to think about what's happening in other communities. But we are all, as Dr. King said, we're mutually linked in a web. So my fate is tied to your fate. Your classmates sitting next to you, you may not know them. They may come from a completely different experience. But what you have the opportunity as young people in college right now is to get to know them, to really be curious about them. And as I said at the open, to question everything. 
Um, question even your religious institutions. I know that's hard for a lot of people to think about, but you must question everything and try to understand how it is things came to be the way that they are and figure out what will your generation's contributions be to making things more equitable, to solving some of these nagging and persistent problems that we faced as a country that really have limited our economic um, vitality. As wonderful as we believe ourselves to be, and we're still, despite our challenges, uh, I like to believe that we are the greatest country still uh, uh, in the globe, but we don't behave that way. And it was time for us to move past these long-standing um, challenges, issues, inabilities to see one another um, as full participants in this democracy. We, young people have the opportunity to move us past that. And I hope they'll take advantage of that opportunity on an individual basis. Have those conversations at your dinner tables. Have those conversations in your in your religious or your faith groups. Have those conversations uh, in your investment companies. If you're in the room and everybody looks like you, ask why. Ask why is that? And why is that normalized? Going back to the definition of structural racism. Why is it normalized that the room, there, there are not enough women in this room or there are no or not enough people of color in this room doing business. And is that a good business model to persist? Well, Lee, thank you so much for providing us with all of those insights and a lot of food for thought. And uh, just on a positive note, you know, as the old Greek philosopher Heraclitus said, change is the only constant. And I believe that with people like you and forward thinkers that we can move this beyond where we are. Uh, we have to remember that these systems were entrenched for so, so long, and we have to chip away every day. And uh, all of our listeners, including our students, have to work every day, do a little bit. If you do your part a little bit every day, eventually we'll get to the end of the race, and uh, we can make all of this work for everyone. And as you said, continue to make America the best country in the world. So... Thank you very much, Lee, for all of your insights today. We hope that you will join us again in the future. Love to, and I am hopeful, Hector. I believe in this generation. I believe that uh, they are the most pluralistic generation we've seen. Uh, and I believe that they too see and are um, not going to, are going to insist upon change. And they're going to I think they're going to take it on and, we're, and I'm hopeful and I'm optimistic about that. So thank you for the invitation. I'd love to come back at any time. Thank you, Lee. It's been a pleasure. This is uh, Dr. Hector Garcia, your host for this episode of Agents of Change. Thank you for listening to Southern New Hampshire University's Agents of Change, a social sciences podcast. Be sure to subscribe to the podcast rate and review us and be on the lookout for more exciting episodes. Goodbye for now.